Today's program was brought to you by Consider Bardwell Farm in Vermont, a producer of award-winning handmade cheese from goat and cow milk. For more information, visit ConsiderBardwellFarm.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Everybody. Welcome back to Sharp and Hot. I am your host, Chef Emily Peterson, coming to you on HeritageRadioNetwork.org, live from Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This is episode number 11. If you are listening for the first time, perhaps you found us on the iTunes cover page. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Sharp and Hot, the safe place to ask me, Chef Emily, all of your dumb cooking questions. Um, I'm going to ask you at the top of the show, if you found us on iTunes and you're loving what you hear, will you go back over there and give us a like, hey, this show's really awesome rating. You can click five stars. You can write in a couple of sentences and say, yeah, she's like really funny and down to earth and pragmatic. And I learn a lot when I listen to her. Or you can say it's terrible and I don't know how this girl has a show. I mean, I don't think anyone's actually going to take the time to do that, obviously. But I saw some other brand new podcasts and they have 402 reviews. I was like, what? And someone was like, um, you have to ask people. So I'm asking you, if you like what you're hearing, go on over to iTunes. Additionally, I'm very excited to share with you our new sponsor, Le Creuset. Um, on November 21st and for that whole weekend, Le Creuset will be opening its first signature store in New York at the Walt Whitman Shops in Huntington on Long Island. In Huntington Station, I believe is the official town name. The signature store features the widest selection of Le Creuset products and a demonstration kitchen. This weekend, they're having their grand opening, and on Sunday, November 24th, I will be there doing a cooking demonstration live. You can come meet me. I'll be showing off the Le Creuset crepe pan, and we'll be featuring a listener recording booth where you can ask me all of your cooking questions that we will use later on on the air. There will be giveaways and, of course, the beautiful, colorful, iconic cast iron cookware, stemware, sorry, cookware, stoneware, dinnerware, wine accessories, and more for you to admire and purchase. So come on down, meet me, record a question, enjoy the brand new Le Creuset Signature Store, and I couldn't be more thankful for their generous support in becoming a sponsor of this here show. So um, I got an email this week that gave me pause for a couple of reasons. One, you are listening enough to critique me, which is fantastic, and I'm super excited to be reaching you. But I think maybe I'm going to record or have someone with a sultry voice record like a disclaimer, like at the top of Tosh.0 that says something like, Chef Emily is not a nutritionist. She's not a dietitian, physician, psychologist, or licensed or overseen in any way by any governing body. She's just a cook who loves you and makes you want to eat good food and maybe laugh along the way. Um, the statement in question a couple of weeks ago while I was giving you all permission to drink full-fat milk, I said that I'd prefer to get my vitamin D from a cow the way nature intended, and up went a collective groan from the food and nutrition scientists out there, as only, as it turns out, only trace amounts of vitamin D are actually found in milk straight from the cow, and that the amounts of vitamin D that I was referring to in whole milk is actually fortified, as in it's added to the milk after it has left the cow. And I will relent that that was true. I looked it up, along with many other things that I look up before coming to you as a cook, not a scientist. But alas, I looked it up after I got yellow carded by the Nutrition or Arbiters Union online, and they sent me an email. 
And I know that the email, and I'm sure that the many, many, many more will follow because by acknowledging that I am wrong often, I think I'm going to open the floodgates for you to point out my wrongness, and that's totally fine. Dialogue is excellent. Um, but I know that this one was intended with love because at the top it said, I mean this with love, but, and then proceeded to tell me how very wrong I was. And truthfully, it makes me a better person, sort of. I mean, I'm not an expert in nutrition because at some point, learning about nutrition science, my eyes glaze, glaze over and I'm like, let's go get a cronut. <laughs> and so I stand by my sentiment though, which is and forever will be that I want you to enjoy eating. And if enjoying eating means swapping out something that makes you sad for something that makes you happy and you have the discipline to not eat that whole pint of ice cream or drink that whole gallon of whole milk, then by all means, I will forever and ever encourage you to do the thing that makes you happy in exchange for a tiny bit of moderation and discipline. Um, so the other thing I want to talk about is that the holidays are coming up and I have some advice. <laughs> Remember, I just said I'm not a licensed therapist, but I'm going to give you some advice on holiday gatherings. Um, next week, I'll give you some practical tips on the serving of food and wine selection and that sort of thing. But first, I want to talk about the minefield that is who is going where for Thanksgiving. Last night, I was teaching a Thanksgiving dinner cooking class in New York City. And at the beginning of all of my classes, I asked people to go around the room and share an interesting fact about themselves that has nothing to do with their professional life. And last night, one woman said, well, I come from a very large family. My dad is one of 12, and my mother's one of 10, and we all get together for Thanksgiving. And I asked, are they all still talking to one another? And she said, of course. But maybe it helps that they were pretty, that were pretty far-flung most of the year. So she kind of, I think she knew that it was maybe unique to have that many... Uh, adults in a room and everyone still be friendly. In my own life, I too come from a very large family. My mother is one of five and my father is one of eight. And there are a handful of cousins in my generation of which I am the oldest on both sides. And I'm the only one with a kid of my own. No pressure. The other of you who know, you know who you are. Um, there have been a lots and lots of divorces and remarriages in fact, my kid's middle name is Plaid because we had so many grandparents when I was little owing to the remarriages that they got nicknames. So my son's middle name is nicknamed from my grandfather who was known as Grandpa Plaid Pants because we had to keep them all straight. So the Grandpa Plaid Pants, there was Grouchy, there was Grandma Beach, and then the one who moved to Hawaii, we called Grandpa Who. As in, did Grandpa send you a card for your birthday? And I would say, Grandpa Who. And then that one stuck too. So in the next generation, my parents' generation, my mother has four sisters, and on any given day, someone isn't talking to somebody else. And in the case of my mother and one of her sisters, it's been since the Christmas cookie incident of 1984, in which a lifetime of hurt and pain erupted into a she-said-she-said said screaming battle over whether or not Gran usually ices the coconut cookies and ended with a truncated meal and a long drive home. My brother and I, little kids with no understanding of what had just happened, First, I was getting out of the car, then I was sniffing the bourbon eggnog, then I was playing with grandma's ice skater figurines, then everyone was screaming, and then my nuclear family was back in the car and we were driving home. So when someone says to me, I come from a really big family and we all get along, to me, that's like hearing someone say, oh yeah, well, we eat dinner and then we go outside and we do a ritual sacrifice in the backyard. Like, far be it for me to judge how people spend their holidays, but man, that's really far from my experience. So... I say all of this to you to tell you that for me, 
the ho- the holidays have been a minefield, and so I've developed some strategies that I think really work for navigating the landscape, owing much to my therapist of many years, who has since set me free. So I feel safe sharing these uh, tools that I follow um, with you so that if you're not coming from a family who everyone just can't wait to see each other and you have knots in your stomach, um, here are some practical things that you can do. Number one, don't host. And I realize that this is a food show and I'm going to give you some ideas on how to host a beautiful, creative, memorable, elegant dinner party. But if it's just going to make you or someone else cry at any point between now and the moment when everyone's leaving, just don't do it. Don't fall into the trap of thinking which I did, if I just make it beautiful enough, then everything will be okay. Or if I just make it delicious enough or complicated enough or simple enough, then everything will be okay. It's not going to happen. So number two, don't drink. What? Me telling you not to drink? I know it sounds crazy, but if you're trying to relax and have a good time, do it with people that don't make you feel like you need to medicate yourself. Particularly if you're looking back on a few bad years of holiday experiences and being like, oh yeah, maybe the bourbon-based eggnog isn't the best welcome cocktail. And if you are with people that don't make you want to reach for a Xanax, then by all means, drink and be merry and be happy because being with people, if you're with people who are relaxing and wonderful and you love and love to be around, then by all means, eat, drink, and be merry. If you're already a little stressed out by the situation, um, the alcohol can add a little bit of a catalyst that may not be what uh, you had in mind in the planning of your beautiful party. Um, Number three, as in breaking down a chicken, and I really like this analogy. I've, I've told it to a couple of people in planning their Thanksgiving and also a friend of mine who's planning her wedding. As in boning a chicken, if it isn't easy, you're doing it wrong. When I teach people to break down chickens, anytime they hit a bone, which if you've never cut apart a chicken before, is a lot. And if you're not knowing what to pay attention for, you'll hit a bone all the time. So anytime they hit a bone and I'm standing next to them, I say like a mantra, stop and take your knife out because you're doing it wrong. If the thought of doing whatever your plan is for Thanksgiving is tying your stomach in knots, whatever it is that that thing is that you're dreading, stop. You're doing it wrong. If you're being bullied again into spending your money to fly to Denver to watch your borderline sister shriek about how much no one, how no one loves her anymore, just don't go. Because here's the thing, and this is the biggest thing that I want you to take away, because I really have learned to love the holidays, and I want you to have the same experience. You cannot manage anyone else's feelings around the holidays, or any other time for that matter. The holidays are fraught, and yet there's nothing but nothing you can do to get everyone just to be happy for one day. I know it sounds so simple, but if you come from a family whom you love and have hope for, but isn't well-mannered over the other 364 days of the year, slamming everyone together at a dinner table and dousing the volatility with alcohol just isn't going to work. No matter how perfectly penned you're like, place cards are that are set just so with acorns and miniature pie boughs and the gold chargers that you bought at home goods and the perfect turkey that I'm going to teach you how to make next week. It's just, it's not worth it. And so do what makes you feel happy around the holidays. And if that means saying, Hey, borderline sister, I love you, but you know what? 
I'm going to stay home this year. Honestly, personally, I'd rather be home eating takeout Chinese food and spend the money that I saved on the plane ticket or the drive on like a really nice bottle of grower champagne than fly somewhere where it's awful and I'm dreading the whole thing leading up to it. I'm dreading packing. I'm dreading the drive. I'm dreading the flight. I get to the house and it is going to just become a self-fulfilling prophecy. I would rather do anything than endure another screaming match on a holiday. And if during this whole monologue you've been wrapped with the foreignness of what it must be like when your family doesn't get along, hey, at least I'm not advocating ritual sacrifice in the backyard. Your questions after the break. Listening to Got the Feeling by the California Honey Drops. But you know I, I'm still, still around, yeah. And I got that feeling all in my bones. Oh, yeah, I got that feeling all in my bones. Yeah, yeah. Well, day in, day out, it's the same old grind. But you know, good things sometimes they take some time. You got to stay thankful and thoughtful, and you know you might find that you got that feeling. Today's program has been brought to you by Consider Bardwell Farm. Spanning the rolling hills of Vermont's Champlain Valley and easternmost Washington County, New York, 300-acre Consider Bardwell Farm was the first cheese-making co-op in Vermont founded in 1864 by Consider Stebbins Bardwell himself. Rotational grazing on pesticide-free and fertilizer-free pastures produces the sweetest milk and the tastiest cheese. All of their cheeses are aged on the farm in their extensive system of caves. Consider Barwell Farm is also a big supporter of Heritage Foods USA's No Goat Left Behind program. No Goat Left Behind is a serious effort launched in 2011 by Heritage Foods USA designed to introduce goat meat to American diners and provide a sustainable end market for dairy animals. For more information, please visit www.considerbardwellfarm.com. Welcome back. This is Sharp and Hot. I am your host, Chef Emily Peterson, coming to you live from Roberta's Pizza on heritageradionetwork.org. Listeners, send me your questions. They can be holiday-related or not. You can record them into the voicemail at 862-242-8599. You can tweet me at Chef Emily P or find me on Facebook forward slash sharp and hot. Our first listener question comes all the way from Ireland. Hi, Chef Emily. This is Dior calling from Ireland. I like the show. Sharp and hot says great stuff. I have a question for you about uh, pomegranates and deseeding them. It's a bit of a messy process. Do you have a good way of doing that? You might let me know. Great stuff. Thank you. Bye-bye. 
So how to get the seeds out of a pomegranate. Um, the first thing I want to say, and I think that this doesn't go without saying, I've met adults who didn't know, that you don't eat a pomegranate like an apple. You, it's actually like the inverse of eating an apple. You only eat the seeds. You leave behind the white flesh and the red peel. And we are going into pomegranate season, which runs uh, from September to about February. So they are widely available and the price comes down a little bit if you buy them seasonally, although they are flown in from, if you live in the Northeast, they are not a local ingredient, um, but they're delicious. And so how do you get the seeds and the juice out of them without making a mess? I think part of it is that, except that you're going to make a mess. Uh, and the juice is worth it because it's delicious in cocktails. You can add a splash to champagne and call that like a pomegranate champagne cocktail. Uh, you can make it in a vinaigrette, in a salad dressing, and it's all super healthy and delicious. And you go to the supermarket and it's like, whoa, how much is a bottle of Palm Wonderful? Holy smokes. I had a Turkish friend growing up. Incidentally, she lived across the hall from Grandpa Plaid Pants and Grandma Beach. And when I'd go and visit with them, they would send me over to Shula's house and her mom would give us each pomegranates, which we were, which are actually perfect to keep little kids busy, big enough that they understand how to eat. But, uh, you know, I mean, I think even up into teenage years. So if you've got a bunch of rugrats coming over in the next couple of weeks for the holidays, maybe stock up on a bowl of pomegranates and show them how to get the seeds out. Um, for little kids, I would show them one by one, but I'll give you a trick that We'll get them all out all at once. Um, anyway, she taught us that if you roll the fruit around on the table underneath your hand, you'll feel it start to crack on the inside. And then she would whack it on the table as hard as she could. And it would break into a few chunks. And we would sit there for about an hour or so, picking the seeds out one by one and enjoying them. Um, but if you don't have an hour, roll the fruit around on your cutting board a couple of times and you'll, you'll feel it cracking. And then use a chef's knife very carefully to score the outside of the skin and a little bit into the flesh all the way around. And then use your fingers and like your fingernails to kind of pry it apart and pry it open. Um, so you, now you have two halves of pomegranate and take one half, bend it as though you're trying to turn it inside out. And then just a little bit, you'll like feel it start to crack and then hold it over a bowl so that the cut side, the side with all the seeds now exposed, is facing down in your palm and whack it really hard with the back of a wooden spoon and the seeds will fall out into your hand and into your bowl. Um, there's a video online of a guy doing this and it's why I hate the internet. He's got 1,366,944 views on a video called how to get the seeds out of a pomegranate in 10 seconds. And then he proceeds to talk for four minutes before he gets to the video. To, or to, I should say to the actual pomegranate seed removal thing. This is why it's important to have an editor in your life. Um, so once you've got the seeds out, if you want to juice them, put them into a deep container, like a quart container that you get takeout miso soup or something like that in, and muddle it as in mint for a mojito. So you can use a muddler if you have one, or you could use a fork. You could use the back end of a wooden spoon, knowing that if you use something that's wooden, it will get stained because the juice is really, really uh, rich red color. But you want to kind of pound the juice out of the little seed pod. So you muddle until you get most of them broken up and then pour that mixture. And you may have to go back and forth a couple of times, but pour that through a very finely meshed colander and Voila, pomegranate juice. And um, so you can do that, muddle it, and then dump it back and dump the solids back in your quart container, muddle it again, strain it again, do that two or three times to get uh, the majority of the juice out. 
and you will have pomegranate juice. It's a lot of work. They're really delicious when they're in season, and it's a lot more affordable than buying the bottle of juice. Although once you've done a couple of pomegranates, you might be you might be doing some calculations on whether or not it's actually worth it to do. Um, okay, let's take a second call. Chef Emily, hi, it's Anthony from Princeton, New Jersey. I am in charge of appetizers for our Thanksgiving holiday, and I tend to want to have hard cheeses and salted meats, your prosciutto, sopressad, dried salamis, and such. I'm looking for um, some suggestions to offer a little more variety. Not everyone comes from the Italian background that I have, so I'd like to offer some things that um, might appeal to more palates. So any suggestions you would have, I'd love to take. Thank you. As I mentioned on last week's show, I've been a caterer and working for a catering company since I was illegally of illegal age to have a job. Um, so I'll tell you a couple of things that everyone scarfs up, even though they seem kind of uh, like look your, down your nose at, but deviled eggs and pigs in a blanket People, I have watched very fancy, very wealthy people wolf down pigs in a blanket. Get really, really high quality pigs. You can get that at a butcher. You can get that, you know, wherever, wherever it is that you're purveying your really, really high quality meat. Around the holidays, generally they make them cocktail franc sized. Um, or get full size dogs and cut them into like one inch lengths, wrap them in some puff pastry and if you want to make them fancy, you can paint them with a little bit of egg and then sprinkle sesame seeds on top. And suddenly they go from pigs in a blanket to like puff pastry, puff pastry wrapped pigs. I don't know. I guess there's no real fancy way to say it. Um, deviled eggs are excellent because they go a long way and they fill people up, which is important if there's alcohol involved. You want to give people something in their stomach early on in the meal so that they don't uh, start to feel tired too early. Um, I'm experimenting with the best way to peel hard-boiled eggs because this has flummoxed me my entire life. And I have referred to Harold McGee who says to add um, baking soda, I believe it's, it's either baking soda or baking powder, to the boiling water and that that will change the alkalinity enough to allow the egg to release from the shell and it doesn't work. I have aged eggs. I have all sorts of plans. Uh, or I, have, I should say I have tested all types of things. The best method that I have found is to have a tool called an egg pick, which is kind of hard to find in this country. If you have um, friends overseas, ask them to mail you one because I found mine in Germany for like a dollar or just use a thumbtack and poke the end, the round end of the egg before you boil it to let the air out. And that lets some water in between the shell and the membrane that holds the white in. And that will make your eggs easier to peel. And then when you're making your egg filling, the filling for your deviled eggs, you can do traditional just like mayo, mustard, some paprika, maybe a little bit of relish, or you can fancy it up. One of my favorites is to add wasabi powder and mayonnaise, and then I get salmon roe and a sheet of nori, and I cut little tiny rectangles of nori, and I put like three salmon eggs on top of each egg, and then a couple of bits of black nori, and they look really, really elegant. Um, another... Slightly time-consuming but really rewarding one is like phyllo triangles. So you can use spinach and feta cheese or you could make like – I have a really delicious recipe from the Frog and Commissary Cookbook that's like curried lamb with currants and tomatoes and honey – and you fold those up in the triangles and bake. You can make them in advance and freeze them. And then on Thanksgiving Day or whatever day the party is, you just pop them into the oven and reheat them. Additionally, to make those fancy, put 
in between a couple of layers of the phyllo dough, sprinkle in some black sesame seeds, and then that'll look, or like some dill, something that'll like look pretty kind of laminated into, into the dough. So let's see, pigs in a blanket, eggs, deviled eggs, phyllo triangles, oh, and shrimp cocktail. People go crazy for shrimp cocktail, and you can get shrimp in all different sizes. You don't have to get super jumbo shrimp, but you get like shrimp that are one bite. I like to take the tails off when I am peeling them because I don't want tails all over the table. Nobody knows what to do with them, and then they get gross, and then they want a new plate, which means more dishes to either purchase or wash. So take the tails off. Get shrimp that are large enough that without their tail, they're still one bite. Cook them. Chill them really quickly. You do that just by throwing them into a container of ice water. And then on your serving platter, slice thinly a couple of lemons or a combination of lemons and limes and sort of shingle that onto your serving platter. Cover that with a layer of crushed ice, which you make by putting into a gallon bag and then whacking with a rolling pin. And then stack your shrimp up on top of that, and that will keep it cold. You want to make sure that the plate you're using has some edges to catch the melting water. But I find that the shrimp are usually the first thing to go on the appetizer buffet. So that's four choices. Those are at every single party that we have uh, when we're feeding a large group of people because they're affordable, they're easy, and they're crowd pleasers. So, yeah. Okay, um, speaking of dough, I just mentioned the, uh, the phyllo layering. Kira from Tampa asks via a Facebook message. I've heard that vodka can be used in pie crusts. What does the vodka do and does it work? I'll use the trick if it works, but I don't have time this week for a failed crust recipe. So vodka adds crispness by reducing the amount of liquid by volume and the, uh, that you add into the dough and the alcohol will evaporate in the heat of the oven, leaving behind a crispier crust. Um, When you make a pie crust, you are, the word is laminating, you are smearing together layers of butter and flour, and then you're incorporating some sort of liquid to pull it all together. So recipes call for either water or vinegar or a combination thereof, sometimes it's milk. If you use one half of whatever the liquid measure is, so if they're saying two tablespoons of water, use one tablespoon of water and one tablespoon of vodka, which won't impart any color or flavor to your dough. Mix that in, and then you'll find that your dough, or your crust rather, after you you follow all the other instructions exactly the same way, you'll find that it's really, really crisp. I mean, I've had it. It's so crisp you can eat your pie like a slice of pizza, um, or, or like it's built on a cracker shell, and it's actually really, really delicious. So, uh, yeah, is there anything else I can tell you about the vodka and the pie crust? Uh, oh, you can make your dough, like the phyllo triangles, you can make your dough now, wrap it in a couple of layers of plastic, throw it in a freezer bag, and then the night before Thanksgiving, or the night before you want to bake your pie, pull them out, let them come to room temperature, or let them come to refrigerator temperature overnight, and then out of the refrigerator for like 15 or 20 minutes before you try to roll it out. So it's not straight from the refrigerator. But there's lots and lots and lots of really good pie crust recipes out on the internet, and I don't really have anything to contribute new to the subject. Um, So yeah, let's see. A big thanks to Le Creuset, our newest sponsor of Sharp and Hot. If you are on Long Island this weekend, don't forget to come out and see me. This Sunday at the Walt Whitman Shops from 1 to 3 at Le Creuset's Signature Store Grand Opening. 
You can record a question. I had magnets printed for Sharp and Hot, so you can have a magnet. If you record a question, we'll give you a magnet, and you can stick it on your fridge. So you've always got the phone number right there. So you're like, oh, wait a minute. Can I use cider vinegar instead of white wine vinegar? I don't know what to do. I know. There's the phone number. I will call Chef Emily. Call in your holiday cooking questions, 862-242-8599. Tweet me at Chef Emily P. Find me on Facebook forward slash Sharp and Hot. As always, we air live on heritageradionetwork.org. And until next week, keep playing with fire and knives. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>